Hello and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are delighted to be talking about Taiwan-China relations. And to help us do that, we have two great guests. One is first Raymond Guo, who is a professor, former professor at Fordham and now at the Rand Corporation running their Taiwan Initiative. Raymond, welcome. Thanks for having me. And also, we have our old friend, Professor Robert Kep. Rob runs the Asia-Pacific Initiative at Chapman University and is a professor at the Chapman Arduous College of Business and Economics. Rob, welcome. Thank you, Marshall. Glad to be here. Well, I'd like to kick things off with a question that's probably on everybody's mind, which is, if you look at the popular press, Taiwan and China are facing off, armed to the teeth, across the Taiwan Strait, ready to go at it with each other. How far from the truth is that? Raymond, start us off. Sure. <clears throat> you know, I was in Taiwan for the election last month and <laughs> doing interviews with both uh, local and international journalists. And the international journalists always ask me, like, so is this is this gonna election gonna lead us to the world to World War III? And I was like, no. Of course not. If you ask people on the ground there, they actually weren't that concerned about the security situation. So my, my usual response to them was like, you know, if, if there's any election that's going to lead us into World War III, it's uh, the U.S. one at the end of the year, uh, not the Taiwan one. <laughs> I, I think, you know, there is obviously a reason to be concerned, right? <clears throat> the Taiwan is the, the most likely flashpoint for a U.S.-China conflict. But I think we have to remember that, A, overall, the, 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 the likelihood of war is quite low historically. Um, and, you know, all sides have a really strong interest to not want to get into a war. Now, that said, you know, if you're Taiwan, you're in the weakest of the sort of triangle. It's, it really is imperative for Taiwan to be arming itself more in order to push back against uh, not just Chinese conventional coercion, but also especially gray zone coercion. So if there's a risk of conflict, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's really in that gray zone where China... Mm -hmm. For example, tries to impose a quarantine or a blockade or Taiwan on Taiwan, or tries to steadily close its international space such that Taiwan doesn't feel like it has any other choice uh, but to kind of try to internationalize the, the dispute and draw in the United States even further. But you know, to, to get back to your basic question, no, I don't think the people on Taiwan or to some extent the people in China really are going for a war uh, at this point. Well, and Rob, it, it's funny because you and I. Right. Landed in Taiwan. We did indeed. The day of the election. Yeah. So what's your sense of all of this? Well, I agree with Raymond. I don't think it's uh, actually that likely. At the same time, I mean, the age-old adage, if you want peace, prepare for war. And to Raymond's point, exactly. Uh, Taiwan needs to be doing more uh, towards its defense. There's this – it's interesting. I mean, there are a couple of debates in Taiwan that I think get overlooked uh, in the United States and in the West – maybe almost outside of Taiwan generally. Uh, so one is there's this there's this really raucous debate about what Taiwan should do. So we saw that, in fact, getting back to your point about the election. So how did the election go? Well, the least favored candidate for Beijing won, Lai Qingde, the DPP, you know, that's a continuation of Tsai Ing-wen's generally considered pro-independence party. At the same time, it, the first time in three election cycles – 
the majority of the votes went to two groups. They, it was a split vote, but they went to two groups that favor more amicable relations across the Taiwan Strait. So that's, to me, the bigger take home. It isn't who won by a relative majority. It's what the people are thinking, which, by the way, I mean, the, the, the spoiler candidate's a bit like a Bernie Sanders. So he, he, he's, you know, it, it, we have lots of discussion about that if you want. But in any case, it's not really clear uh, if, it, if it's, it's not so much a pro uh, mainland stance as much as, hey, let's lower the tension. So that is the consensus view, certainly. And even the DPP, which is now in power in the executive branch, they aren't talking like they were a few years ago when China was a lot poorer and, and a lot less militarized to say, hey, you know, let, let's go our own way. Everyone's talking along the lines of let's try to work things out. So so I think that's, you know, where you have to start seeing the issue. And, and it's the Western press, I think, likes to see, hey, here's a conflict point. And it's understandable. And it's good to have the scrutiny. And, and it shouldn't be ignored, the possibility. But the, the likelihood, just as Raymond was saying, you really don't see an interest in heading in that direction. And there isn't an economic interest at all. Well, I'd let, let's talk about that economic interest because I think underlying all of this uh, attitude of kind of let's keep things going, let's not let's not fan the flames too much on the Taiwan side is a very deep set of uh, economic and business relationships. Uh, I'm not sure people really appreciate that. It, Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, and I also just want to add, in the context of the China now having far less foreign investment, I assume foreign investment into Taiwan is continuing. Yes and no. Yeah. Um, in the sense that, like, you know, a lot of – so, you know, China has steadily over the last few years been imposing economic sanctions or cutting back on the free trade agreement essentially it's signed with Taiwan, the ECFID, uh, under the Mainjo administration. But the important thing to note is that they're reimposing those tariffs on agricultural products. Uh, they're not imposing those or reimposing those on semiconductors. And the reason why is that, you know, about 35, 40 percent of Taiwan's trade, I believe, is with uh, the mainland. And the vast majority of that by value as well uh, is is um, is semiconductors. It's intermediary goods. The Chinese rely upon the stuff that Taiwan manufactures in order for it to do like its high tech industry and high tech manufacturing. Uh, so those intermediary goods, I think, are a, a pretty important uh, re or one important factor for preventing conflict across the strait. I think there's two things I would actually mention in terms of saying that this may not be as, as rosy a picture as we might think. Um, one, Taiwan is actively diversifying its uh, trade relations with especially Southeast Asia, but also, you know, we're, we're seeing negotiations happening right now with the United States. I think this is good from a security perspective. China has very clearly shown to South Korea, Australia, to Taiwan itself, that's willing to uh, use economic coercion to get their way. Um, and so diversifying is probably a good thing. But Dale Copeland, who I don't remember where he's a professor somewhere, he just had this great new book on, on um, economic statecraft by great powers. And his argument for the longest time is that it's not trade specifically that, re that uh, reduces conflict between two states. It's trade expectations. Mm -hmm. If I believe that in the future we will continue to trade more, then I have a reason not to want to fight. But if I think that I've hit the high point of our trade, 
and it's time and like and it's only downhill from here then i might actually want to fight you i have less the, the shadow of the future matters less if i think our relations are going downhill and so you know there are good reasons for 